episode 100 of Smart Enough to Know Better is coming up. We are looking for sponsors. Sponsors! So, if you would like to put in a couple of hundred bucks to get your product or service promoted. Or, or business. Or business. Or shady dealings. Shady dealings. Yeah. You don't promote shady dealings. No, no, but look, no one's tried, and you should maybe try with Smart Enough to Know Better, episode 100. Yes. So, in front of our live audience and on the podcast, mm-hmm. Podcast 100, listenership of... Many hundreds of people, over a thousand downloads per episode. You could promote to all these people for just the mere couple of hundred bucks. That's right. So, if you would like to do that, please get in contact with Dan at smartenough.org or tell your manager or manager's manager. Go over the head of your manager to your manager's manager. (laughs) Keep doing that. And help support the podcast that you love. Greg Waugh and Dan Beeson are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 98 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science. Comedy. And ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. And I'm Greg Waugh. In this episode, we're going to be doing a roundup of space. Space! All the new space news that there is. Space news! So, without any delay whatsoever, let's jump straight into it. Welcome to the interview PhD candidate from Swinburne University, Rebecca Allen. Hi. Well, she's not really being welcomed to an interview because it's not an interview until she joins us. (laughs) Which is now. Yeah, but she can't, you can't welcome something to something that doesn't exist. But it's, no, but it does exist. It didn't exist. Hang on. So are you trying to say the interview didn't even exist before before she was part of it? But she was part of it. She just wasn't speaking. Does an interview require someone to talk all the time, Dan? Yes. That's what an interview is. No, no, but you can have silence in an interview. Hang on. We're going way off topic. Yeah. Straight off the bat Look, here. you can have silence in an interview. Just ask Rebecca, who hasn't got a word in her choice yet. <laughs> We've fallen into all the old traps. Sorry about that, Rebecca. Now, Rebecca, can you please tell our listeners who you are and uh, what exciting stuff you do? My name is Rebecca Allen. I am a PhD candidate at Swinburne. and I study high redshift galaxy evolution, and my main focus and what I'm really interested in is using high-resolution imaging from the Hubble Space Telescope to really understand how these galaxies evolve from what we call so high-redshift billions of of light years away, distant universe to the universe that we see today. So can you just bring our listeners up to date on that? So if something is high red shifted, what does it actually mean? It means that we're looking back in time. We're looking at objects that existed in the early universe. And so there were galaxies in the early universe? I thought they took ages to build. Oh, they do, but they, the universe is quite old. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's relative. You know, I can say billions of years, and it's like, okay, uh, like 2 billion or 9 billion. Right. And the objects I'm looking at, uh, the light that we see is about 9 billion years old. Oh uh, you know, of course, expansion of the universe, these objects are a little bit further away than 9 billion light years, but approximate distance, you can say that they're that, that far away. Really far. <laughs> so if they're deep red shifted, does that mean that they're traveling away from us or accelerating away from us faster than something that's only kind of red, like pink shifted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They're really far away. They're going to continue to get further and further away. And that, I guess, the speed which they're moving away from us is accelerating. Mm. So 
yeah, okay. they're quite quite far. Well, when you look back at these nine billion year old galaxies, all the images from these galaxies, do they look like galaxies we have today? Is there anything fundamentally different about them? Because these objects are so far away, imagine when you're trying to make out somebody's face on the other side of a cricket oval. Oh. It's you know you can't make out as much detail, and so when you're looking at galaxies that are at redshift three or four or even two, that's about nine billion light years away, they just all look like fuzzy blobs. Right, okay. <laughs> so we really depend on tools which allow us to study the what we call the light profiles of these galaxies to get the information of what's going on in them. I can't look at it and, you know, like we look at a picture of Pluto and we're like, oh, that's a planet. You know, now we can see all these features. But when you look at a galaxy that's that far away, it's like, oh, great, it's that one's kind of blobbier than that one. And... <laughs> if you saw a galaxy that was 9 billion light years away, but it was blue shifted, would that mean it was approaching us? Is that an impossible thing to happen at that distance? When we talk about red shifting and blue shifting, you have to be careful because there's a different ways to understand that. The gas within the galaxy, you know, could be rotating and some of that gas could be moving towards us. Mm. But galaxies that are so far away at this distance, it's really hard to collect enough light to understand if that's going on or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the grand scheme of things, that galaxy is definitely moving away from us. Objects which are closer, like in our own kind of local group with the Milky Way and we have Andromeda, well, we're in a group, but we're part of this larger scale structure, which is not as big <laughs> you know, as the grand structure of the universe with you know everything kind of accelerating away from each other. So we're moving towards Andromeda. Andromeda is moving towards us. We've got some smaller satellite galaxies orbiting us. And so, you know, we do have these kind of motions which are very local. And then that's when you start to see galaxies moving towards us. But stuff that's that far away, no, we just, it's going, going, gone. Gotcha. (laughs) I guess it's the whole difference between something that's moving away or towards us because it's actually accelerating away or towards us. And the other, at extreme distances, the universe itself is expanding. So there's, uh, there's more distance being created between us. does that make does that make sense? That's exactly correct. Okay, so we have to kind of look at it in different yeah in two different ways. So things are that far away. If it was blue shifted, it would have to be moving towards us faster than the universe was expanding. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't even, is that possible? I don't even know if that's possible. Well, but the gas. So let's say you know one of these really distant galaxies is probably star. You know, the high chance that it's star forming, and so it's got this disk of gas. Well, that gas and that t- disk could be you know rotating towards us, but because the galaxy is so far. away, way it's hard for us to understand the motion mm. of the gas in the disc and that's like i was saying you know it's where it's hard to tell is that galaxy a disc is it mm. a spheroid what is its morphology is, is it just a giant cube of stars perfect in every way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, would, that would mess with people's minds it's a, it's a cube of stars <laughs> are we limited by our instruments so when we get the james webb telescope will you be salivating to get some time on it absolutely james webb is really specialized uh for what I do, All right. um, I'm looking for the boundaries that we are with Hubble. JWST is going to be able to push us to be able to look even further back and resolve these gaps. When I say resolve, basically to be able to see more detail of these high redshift galaxies. Mm. 
and you'll be able to see further back. Is that something you want to be able to see further back or just see these ones in greater detail? Um, you know, I'm pretty happy just to see these ones in, <laughs> in greater detail. It's really important because we haven't yet constrained exactly when is the epoch of galaxy formation and what are the earliest galaxies? What do they look like, so to speak? And how did they affect the early universe? And so we need to get a handle on being able to understand the physics that happened at that point in the universe. And the way to do that is to see galaxies that existed at that time in the universe. Hmm. And so that's how we constrain what's going on. So just out of interest, if you point the Hubble at a certain patch of stars at these distant galaxies, I'm assuming it's not like a selfie. You just go click and it's done. <laughs> how long does the Hubble have to say pointed in one direction to get the information you need? Well, that's a great question. So the images I use, some of them actually call from come from what we call the Hubble ultra deep field. And we use, we also utilize these, what they're called legacy surveys, such as Cosmos, where they literally point Hubble at a patch of sky and just say, okay, go for two days, you know, <laughs> hours and hours and hours and hours, just so we can collect as much light as we can right. from these extremely faint distant galaxies. <laughs> so this oh, thing goodness. is, this thing is rocketing around the planet at tens of thousands of kilometres per hour. How do you keep it directly lined up? How do you keep it pointed in the... Like, I can't do it with Greg's telescope when we stand on the planet. Everything keeps rotating. It's like everything's spinning around each other. It's like we're standing on a ball next to other balls. It's It's, weird. It's absurd. And yet this one is like... It's like trying to fire a rifle while you're dropping down the side of a building. Yeah, no, I, that's where we let other engineering wizards take over. And I can tell you theoretically how it should be done, but, um, yeah, no, I'm happy to let somebody else have that job. So, all right, so are we just declaring magic here? Magic. It's all magic. Science, <laughs> if it's engineering magic, we'll just believe it at that. That's, that's not really the crux of this podcast. Not really. If you're an engineer and you're insulted by that, please write to Dan at smartenough.org. <laughs> Now, so that's pretty. So that sounds awesome, Rebecca. You sound like you have a very interesting job that that keeps you excited and interested in everything you do. It's really interesting, but of course, it's it's very difficult when you're doing a PhD because you really get an understanding of what is it to make science, mm. and if, you know, you get all these data and you get images, and it's not like I just have a eight by ten of a galaxy and I say, you know, <laughs> ah, you know, there we go. That's this is you know, the theory of how galaxies evolve. You have to take those images and turn it into data and then make sense of that data and then do statistical analysis on it so you can say, okay, well, how robust is this result? And then you get to have the fun part of writing a paper about it. And, <laughs> yeah. So it's not just where's Wally astronomy version. <laughs> <laughs> so but, um, yeah, it's, it's all problem solving. And so that's what I really love about it. And space is not the final, you know, final frontier. Here. I hate to use that. <laughs> and you might get sued. You have to be careful about that. <laughs> Paramount is very protective. <laughs> where all these amazing questions are, and it's where we came from, and we're just on this little boat floating in this giant ocean of the universe, and so it's cool to study what it's all made of. It's all of heavy maths, and that's sort of what you're working on. But then do you ever sit back and go, I'm, I might be the first, first conscious being to ever look at this data this image and and sort of ponder this blob of light which is actually billions of stars does ever kind of hit you the 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 madness of that 
Yeah. Um, and a great example is like I was saying, if you want to look at the Hubble ultra deep field and you look at this image and everything in it is a galaxy and the idea that <laughs> there's billions of other galaxies out there and who knows what's going on there. And it's just amazing. How did they form to look at it? And that's kind of really my favorite part is whenever I'm not analyzing data i just like to pull up the hsc images and be like whoa look at that galaxy <laughs> look at the shape of that one how is that even possible what's going on there and you know so it's it's cool just the variety you get to see in, in these galaxies it's more fantastical than you know you could ever imagine is what is already there in the universe much closer i saw a picture of a high definition picture of the sombrero galaxy and it was sort of showing all the gas around the outside and yeah. and then I realized that down the bottom right, there were two little spots of light. And when you zoomed in on they, they were galaxies in the background. I had like photobomb the Sabrero galaxy. <laughs> yeah. And I went, there are two more galaxies. <laughs> and they're just so far away. They're just almost points, but you can sort of see little spirals on them. And I went, that's okay. That's it. My mind just exploded. Yeah. Uh, we're just, as an ape that evolved to hunt on the savannas of Africa, we're not really designed for distances of nine billion light years <laughs> and trillions of stars we just kind of go one two three many we're done we're out yeah. <laughs> i know and it's like you get to a point where you tell people well we know that there are billions of stars in our galaxy and around yeah. those billions of stars you know there's got to be planets and then yeah. lose people and i love using because you know we could say billion or you can be a cool scientist and said say you know giga like giga year and people are like what does that even mean yeah that's right <laughs> It means magic. That's what it means. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> That's what you're working on. That sounds really interesting. And we could talk about that all day. But I just need to know. I, I'm going to put forward an uh, We need some news. We need some news. But, but, but We've yeah. been talking about paddle wheels and smelting iron that, for a lot of podcasts. We have been. Let's just get on to some, some... Now, I'm assuming that it's there's nothing interesting going on in space at the moment. Like, it's space. Everyone points out it's boring. It's, it's nine billion light years away. There's nothing interesting happening in space right now, is there, Rebecca? I would say that is not true. Oh. <laughs> well, Very name, polite. Name one. I dare you. Name one interesting thing that's going on in space right now. Well, in space at the moment, we have this awesome thing that NASA has jettisoned out into the outer solar system known as New Horizons. Right. And it is telling us loads and loads about everybody's favorite dwarf planet. Oh, no. <laughs> we at Smarter So Better support the dwarf planet nomenclature for Pluto. It's not a planet. I fight it. I have to, I'm sorry, people. People who don't like to hear that, it's not a planet. Sorry. Well, it's a dwarf planet. It's a dwarf planet. That's what she said. Sure. Yeah, no, I know. I know that. So I'm just, just saying, just putting forward her listeners. Right. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm on Rebecca's side. Okay. That's right. <laughs> This, our podcast is positioning itself firmly in the dwarf planet. We don't want to support the return of it being a planet. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast, yeah. and uh, we, we, we we're strongly defending the dwarf planet. Well, actually, I'm, I'm more from the school of thought that it's actually a god in a chariot. <laughs> well, it's just some pictures that might have proved you wrong. All right. So, what did they actually discover? What What did New Horizons discover? I mean, how long it took nine years to get there is that yeah. correct yeah the better part of a decade to reach the outer solar system which tells you you know again we're talking about perspective and and relative i say billions of light years well it took a decade just for us to send something to the outermost part of our solar system which isn't even the outermost part it's just as far as we've been able to really see so far mm. so you know that tells you <laughs> that, well, that's uh, only a quarter of a month on a pluto 
scale, isn't it? Yeah. It's a quarter of a Pluto month. What's Pluto's orbit? Is it 200 and something years? Yes, I couldn't tell you off yeah, the top of my head, but it's it's so far away that it takes it a really long time to yeah. go around the sun. Yeah, Pluto's uh, going, well, that took spring. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But what New Horizons is so cool is that it's got this fleet of instruments on it, which are able to tell us the, the latest and greatest is that as New Horizons has gone behind Pluto, further out past it, it's looked back and it's taken this picture of Pluto with the sunlight coming through the atmosphere. Oh, wow. And then that gives us all kinds of information about, wow, we're actually seeing that Pluto has these things that are like hazes where the methane is being broken down into different hydrocarbons and what gives it the structure and looking back at the big heart shape area of Pluto, they're like, whoa, is that actually an ice, you know, ice, I use quotation marks mm. because it's not water ice, it's made out of different hydrocarbons, but you're seeing perhaps a movement, a flow of ice oh, on this, that's supposed to just be a frozen rock sitting oh out there, and so it's just cool because we have this idea of planets looking at our rocky planets that are close by, Mars, and in Earth, obviously, it's our best example, but we, we really don't have a great handle on, well, okay, what are these things? How did they form? And so it's really important for our fundamental understanding of our own solar system mm. to go out and study these weird objects like Pluto, which, you know, you can call it a dwarf planet, but I love it because it was the first of this whole other set of things that we have no idea mm. <laughs> about. We don't even know how many more there are out there and how they formed, really. And So, so Pluto-sized objects, there could be more Pluto-sized objects in the outer solar system? I think, actually, we already know of a, another bigger Kuiper belt. So Pluto, the area which it resides in, we call the Kuiper belt. Mm. And Pluto isn't even the biggest one that we know of. I think there's another one which is maybe twice the size of Pluto, but you know, much bigger. Mm. And so so it's cool because it's like Pluto is not even the biggest one. So <laughs> poor Pluto. Yeah. So yeah. and there's a question then. If, if we if we saw that ice flow, it might have been moving. So that the the heart shape, which is amazing, or yeah. a whale's tail. Some people say it kind of yeah. looked like a whale's tail, a whale hiding on the other side of Pluto from our camera. <laughs> so why didn't we put the New Horizons into orbit? Because now now we're, it's hooning away at what 16 kilometers a second. It's really blasting along. Why didn't we just hang a left and? throw it around Pluto and, and put it into orbit? Well, that's a great question. So what we have, the New Horizons spacecraft, is what I would call kind of stage one awesome exploration thing. Mm -hmm. And the next stage is that you actually have what's called an orbiter. Mm -hmm. And so... New Horizons, in order to get it out there and not take 200 years instead of a decade, <laughs> you have to send it at a pretty good clip. And so it's really just speeding along, and you can't just tell it, hey, just stop. Yep. We're there. And so it's it's going to keep on cruising by. Mm. And so what usually is done is that once you get the spacecraft out to the planet of interest like we did with Saturn and the Cassini and Huygens probe is that then you send something down. So you've got the spacecraft and then usually you have an orbiter and then maybe you have a lander. Mm. And so we're at the spacecraft stage with Pluto where, Hey, we just were able to send something out there and it went perfectly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't go off trail at all, which is <laughs> so amazing to me. Like we say, the engineering wizards there back at JPL. Um, and so that's really the first stage. And so the next idea would 
would be to send another spacecraft out and have it launch an orbiter, which will actually take the time to sit and, and go around the planet and take pictures. Mm-hmm. And this is like you've seen with the Rosetta and the Filey probe. Mm, so mm. Rosetta, you send out there and you send a probe to actually go down and land on the comet. On, on 67P, is that correct? Yeah. That, I can never, yes. I, it's got a massive Russian name as well, but I can never remember that. Yeah, it's like uh, Jerry Marov Cherisominko. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, bravo. Well done. Well, well done. done, everyone. Half day. <laughs> Yes, I think it's one of those names you go, I'm not even going to try. Pluto looks amazing. <laughs> I, I was really shocked to discover that up until two months ago, all we could see was a smudge. Because mm. I yeah. grew up with the with all these artist renditions. And sure. mind you, I grew up thinking that we had a space station. So <laughs> now we do. Yeah, which is pretty yeah. awesome. But Pluto looks like one of those planets that Flash Gordon would land on. Like all the other planets, like Venus is a write-off. You can't even see the surface. Yeah. Mercury is just very bland because it's yeah. quite hot. It's heavily cratered, yeah. Mars, eh, it's got some ice caps, I guess. It's but... like the biggest mountain in the solar system. Yeah, but not... yeah. back off from Mars. But you... Mars? No, oh, look, look, you land on Mars, it's going to look great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm no problems with that. I, I love... will land on Mars. I'm I working love... towards it. So. I loved Watchmen. But... <laughs> From above, it mm. looks a bit flat and a no, bit dull. Don't, don't, oh, okay, fine. But Pluto, it looks, it's got this architecture almost. Yeah. The thing I need to ask actually about Pluto specifically, Rebecca, is how is it not cratered? Like, it seems to have very few craters. It seems well, quite flat for something that's out there and it should have been hammered to heck and back. Sure. What the heck is going on there? That's a great observation. And so you think, okay, well, if it's all these solid ice balls out in space, they're going to smash into each other. Big chunks are going to be out. There's going to be craters. And so the fact that we don't see that tells us that either nothing's colliding with it. Okay, well, we know the probability of that's pretty low. Mm. Or that Pluto is able to reshape its surface. Uh-huh. And that can happen through plate tectonics. You know, if we have volcanism on Earth and mm. Mars used to have it and Venus obviously is too good at it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, you know, perhaps these ice flows are a clue for us to understand is Pluto completely solid? Are these ices, is it kind of like a big slushy? So when things land in it, you know, they don't leave a giant crater. And that's what analyzing the surface and analyzing these images and then, you know, kind of the spectra and understanding the composition. So they might say, oh, well, look, we found this hydrocarbon in the spectra that could only exist if there was something in a specific state at a temperature. And then that tells us, okay, well, then Pluto's surface temperature, we have a pretty good handle on that. But then maybe there's these type of hydrocarbons that can exist mm. and we, you get kind of like a lake or not just this solid uh, state. <laughs> that would be bizarre. So, so it's like if it can heal itself. Like yeah. a space whale can. A, yes, yeah, very good. I wonder if we're going to get that reference. Yeah, I, I, I like to get that. When I was thinking about the resurfacing of Pluto, just I was thinking more like Io, Io, the one of the moons of Jupiter. It's right. getting crushed or squeezed more to the point by the gravity of Jupiter as it goes round. So it's very volcanic. So sure. and so that, then I was extrapolating that out to Pluto and, and Sharon. Could it, could the Pluto still be liquid in its center because it's got a massive moon that's just keeping everything churned up? 
up. Would that be possible? Right. So that was the other thing I was going to say. So it's what we call tidal interactions. Right. And so it's when you have either a really massive thing like Jupiter and it's, you know, tugging on Io, kind of like the moon and Earth play on each other. You know, that's why we have the tides Mm -hmm. is because of these tidal interactions. But with the Io-Jupiter scale, it's so great that it's actually causing Io to be able to have volcanic activity. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps it's a similar kind of thing where you have these gravitational bodies pulling on each other. And so you're getting some kind of tectonics or, you know, some kind of tidal pulling and pushing where the surface of the planet is expanding and contracting a little bit. And so then you're able to reshape it, so to speak. Mm. But the thing that is cool with Io and then even looking out at Pluto, these things aren't made out of carbon and stuff like Earth. Mm. They're made out of something totally different. So understanding how you make a planet out of this stuff and then how is it going to react with tidal interactions and what's going on is very complex not problem but to understand that isn't just it's not like oh well this is what happens on earth so it's going to be exactly that way i have got a question that is probably really dumb that has just <laughs> occurred to me um craig is nodding <laughs> oh, yeah. oh. now pluto and charon they're orbiting a point in the center which from a comet's point of view or an asteroid's point of view it's sort of aiming at the point between them So would that mean that both the moon and Pluto are less likely to encourage something to hit them because all the objects are sort of focused on the point between them and it's just going to (laughs) miss between them? Is that a thing? Well, so Pluto (laughs) and its moon orbit uh, a common, like, centre of mass. Yeah. Now, when you have something coming in, like a a little comet, let's say, it's still going to smash into Pluto because Pluto is the biggest kid on the block, and its potential well is the deepest. And so it's going to get pulled in by Pluto. But then if it starts to orbit Pluto, then you get all this fun, you know, resonance stuff where there's the moon and, you know, fun things happen with the orbit. But if Pluto is much more massive, it's not going to go to the center of mass when it's coming in. It's going to skate right in and then fall in and hit Pluto. (laughs) Oh, that makes much more sense when I think about but does that mean that when we send the orbiter to Pluto one day, could we set up so the orbiter sits right at that point so that it just with no energy can sit between Charon and Pluto, just between the two perfectly, just balanced up that, that little tipping point? Well, that would be great. <laughs> you don't want to send an orbiter that's going to crash into Pluto. No. That would not be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, we're against that sort of thing. Yeah, it'd take a lot of energy to get it to stop, though, surely. Well, yeah, yeah. It, it really, really would. So the other question I need to ask is that I just realized I have no idea about this answer. So is Pluto not made of rock? No. It's got hydrocarbons. So when we say rock, we're talking about carbon. Mm. And it's, it, like I say, it's all relative, right? <laughs> uh, Pluto is super rocky compared to Jupiter, which is just a giant (laughs) ball of gas. But so it's made out of hydrocarbons. And so we think it's just kind of a big methane ice ball. Oh, right. You have Uranus and Neptune, where we think it's methane in this gas form. 
but Pluto is probably methane more in a solid form. Right. Oh, okay. So it's not like a, a layer of methane, like ice and snow on top, and then turns into something deeper. I keep saying rock, but I don't know what else to say. Uh, rocky gas. Rocky. I think is the. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Dan. It's a solid uh... gas. <laughs> So is, is, is what I consider more rock, like Earth rock in the center. Mm. So it's not like that. No. So the, the rocky planets stop at Mars. Mm. And then after that, you know, you have the asteroid belt. And we think further out of understanding how the solar system formed is in that innermost part of Mars inward. It stayed really hot for a while. And you had all these things smashing into each other. And so that kept it hot. Mm. But this is why you have, you know, kind of all these rocky planets on the inside. And then out past that, we think, okay, things were able to cool down. You get more complex molecules, and you get these gases, which are able to condense. And that's kind of why we think we see Jupiter and then Saturn and Uranus and Neptune and then even Pluto and the Kuiper Belt objects not made up of the same kind of things as Earth and the asteroids. Right. Okay. So it's totally different material. All right. Yes. Now, that said, I have to to say, the whole reason we're looking at a comet, well, not the whole reason, (laughs) so that would be kind of mean, but one of the main reasons we put Philae on the comet was to say, okay, do these comets, is that what brought Earth water? Because Mm -hmm. we're not 100% sure how Earth got water. Again, it all has to do with how do you get water on a planet which in its early stages was basically a molten ball of lava <laughs> yeah. yeah yes not the best um, place for it yeah that's not yeah. rock either when it's lava yeah that's right <laughs> yeah. so it's all about answering these questions and understanding okay well do we have the same kind of water on this comet that we do on earth mm. and then possibly that's how earth gets water and then you want to tick all the boxes and again that has to do with Ceres, the asteroid mm. bringing up these bright patches it's interesting we want to know okay are these little ice caps on Ceres? so could it be that it's water is able to condense and form there and then you have this thing that smashes into earth and then that's how you get the water again it's just understanding how these little bodies form how the molecules form on them and then is it possible like transferring those to earth like it's a you know sharing germs almost Mm. so to speak (laughs) lovely way of thinking about it so you're talking there about the white spots the two white spots on series these two very shiny bits on a very rocky ball yeah uh, sitting in the asteroid belt when i saw that picture i went oh it's just looking at us it's just (laughs) it's just like oh i can see you oh yeah come on closer come everything's everything's perfectly safe come on closer there's something about that there's like inside this crater it reminds you i know what it is it's the light you know in um in uh, is it empire strikes back or is it star wars when the the millennium falcon flies into the crater and it's a giant space worm it's the eyes of a giant space worm going perfectly safe in my crater come on in probe That's my theory. That's my scientific theory on what's going on. That's right. (laughs) It'll all happen. It's like an intergalactic picture plant trap. That's right. Yeah, it's just a giant space spider hiding in a hole. It's an actual Venus fly trap. Oh, very very good. Uh, Now, so we've answered all those questions. Thank goodness. Everything about planets is all solved now. Thank goodness. So... (laughs) 
Um, Take that box. Yes. But now Dan made a comment about the the space whale, that his space whale theory on Pluto. So he he believes now there's some sort of whale living on Pluto. The God rides it. Which the God rides, of course. That makes perfect sense. There's no no flaw to this. But human beings. There's no ceiling, there's no walls, there's not a lot of architecture (laughs) at all. That's right. Everything's good. Uh, So human beings always trying to see people, gods in space. We saw our planets are named after gods, and we have all this idea, you know, constellations, which are people like Orion and that sort of stuff. We have this idea that there's something or someone in space and and we really want to meet them recently i heard about something called breakthrough listen i believe it's called that this seems to be the next step in trying to say hi to the things in space why not part of our human nature is to explore and that's why we're going to try to send people to mars because in my opinion you can send probes there to do all these awesome things you don't really need to send people but it's the idea of we can do it mm. and we want to see are there other beings out there? Is there other intelligence? From what we know, like I was saying earlier, billions of stars, billions of planets, the chances are pretty good that something out there is living. Mm. The question is, can we catch it at just the right time that it's the same level as intelligence as us? They're Mm. sending communication in the same way that we are able to receive it. I mean, I just think it's a, a cool idea, though. You've got a billionaire who decides to just say... Use these telescopes, one in the northern hemisphere, one in the southern hemisphere, the radio telescopes. And let's just check out all the nearest stars. I mean, why not? <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that, that if he put $100 million of his own money yeah. to pay to pay. For, yeah. I would love to be able to go, here's $100 bucks. Just, you yeah. Knock yourself out, kids. I'll see you in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and what's great, too, is, you know, you're just taking all this data mm-hmm. and then you've got the radio astronomers sitting in the background going, oh, what, you know, what frequency is that? What wavelength? Let's can we, you know, use that data to impossibly make other discoveries. So mm-hmm. it's always great when somebody decides to continue to fund a telescope and, you know, possibly make modifications and upgrades to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the person listening out. for Little Green Men is going, oh, this is a complete waste. And there's other people going, hey, that particular uh, static is very interesting to Mm. me. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not just looking at one at one thing, and and it's the sharing of data. So, that, so the data yeah. will just be given to anyone. Is that is that correct? That part I'm not particularly clear on. The idea is that perhaps people will help look through the data, but it's not like, hey, here, Bob, you know, here's all the data. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, just take go. just take it all. That's fine. Yeah. Don't do anything weird with it. Now, sometimes I hear people they go, oh, but what happens? You know, what look what happened to the American Indians when when Columbus turned up? It, it never ends well for the in inverted commas less advanced species. So and they worry about us being the not so advanced species. Is are we actually trying to communicate with anyone, or are we are we just quietly sitting in our hole listening? We are, I guess, trying to communicate in the way that we're <laughs> we're sending out radio signals like all over the planet all the time. So if anybody's listening, they can hear, so to speak. That's right. Um, and if anyone in the future in space is listening to this, we're sorry, aliens. Uh, please, <laughs> please don't base the uh, human civilization on smart enough to know better. Yeah, uh, we're better. Than- we're Pluto better than this. Be like, how dare you call me a whale? <laughs> Look, luckily, smart enough to know better has never broadcast on the RF frequency. Oh, thank goodness! So it's, oh, all on go. the, it's all on the web. Oh, thank God! Yeah. But we're perfectly safe. We didn't destroy. We haven't destroyed everything. Then that's that's not our fault, universe. It's not our fault. <laughs> well, the thing that blows my mind is we think obviously you have to start somewhere, and radio is a great place to start. And it's a great way to send information. But then I was, you know, went to this talk the other day on 
neutrinos. Mm. And, you know, neutrinos are these almost massless particles which travel not quite at the speed of light and they don't really like to interact with anything. Mm. This talk I went to saying it would be a great way for this highly advanced civilization to send information because you don't have to worry about planets or spaceships or anything getting in the way. You just send a beam of neutrinos <laughs> and then my mind just exploded. Yes. Like, yeah, but if I... they don't interact with anything, how do you pick up the signal? <laughs> well, it's very difficult and you know that's why it would have to be an extremely advanced civilization because we were excited when our first neutrino detection and it was like we've got five <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's right and one of them one of them yeah. seems to have the entire encyclopedia britannica encoded on the side of it that's weird yeah. <laughs> that's a bit... hey but now our sun sends out an rf signal doesn't it so wouldn't our little rf signals being broadcast from antennas be completely overwhelmed and washed out by the rf signal from our sun Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So I think the trick is, you know, you're looking for different wavelengths. You know, you're looking for information embedded in the signal. And the the sun, because it's got nuclear fusion at the center, (laughs) is uh, really good at sending out all kinds of radiation. And so then the trick would be able to separate that from a different radio source. So you're looking at different sources of where it's coming from. And so the idea would be that you could separate that. Okay. I think someone's wish just got granted. (laughs) An angel just got their wings. (laughs) Fantastic. We we at Smarter Than a Better, it's very important to to tell this to important scientists like yourself. We've actually named the sun because we realized the sun didn't have a name. So many years ago, we called it Chad. Uh, (laughs) And we actually had a vote on the name of the moon. And so the moon is now named Colin. And uh, we sent it to the IAU. And the IAU said, they wrote back a letter. They're not playing ball. Well, they, they were very polite. They went, you can call it whatever you like. If enough people in the world call it that then that'll be what it's called but at the moment we're going to stick with the sun so if, if, look, feel free rebecca to, to in your no no no, no. In what they important... said oh, is that sorry. everyone can call it what they oh, wish yeah, what their culture yeah, developed very, calling it was very wishy very huggy yeah that's right yeah. now so, so rebecca as an important scientist if you ever want to just drop into your papers chad you know the sun in brackets and then you can put a little one and say smarter to better we're not going to stop you that's what we're just saying no pressure we're yeah. just in fact one of the greatest moments of my life was when Dan pulled out the letter from the IAU that he'd actually written saying, well, we've just named the sun. And they were very, instead of going, you're lunatics, they were very polite to us. <laughs> we are on our way to an ignoble prize. Right. <laughs> so feel free to spread Sorry, that. Sorry, guys. If, if, I, if I ever decide to name the sun, it's definitely going to be a female name. We didn't think we just thought Chad sounded friendly. That's all. I don't know. I think, I think Athena has a nice ring to it. That's a, that's that's wisdom and, and <laughs> violence, isn't it? That's, that's <laughs> well, you know, there's nuclear fusion at the center oh, of the sun. Oh, and... fine. Oh, no, no. We're, we're, look, we're sorry. We're going to keep pushing the Chad thing. I'm sorry. We, <laughs> okay. we, 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 we've tied ourselves to this hitch, and we have to keep going now. We're very sorry. There's momentum. Very small momentum, but. <laughs> I have the horrible feeling we just split our base. I know, I know, no. Oh, <laughs> this backfired. Oh, totally, you totally. Know this is possible. <laughs> uh, now, the, the other one I wanted to ask about. One of our listeners got in contact with us and said, oh, I just read this great article talking how there are these tubes of plasma found yeah. in the atmosphere or above the atmosphere of the Earth. What do you know about them? And I had to write back with a very eloquent, huh? And so... <laughs> 
And I just said, look, we'll find someone who knows what the heck they're talking about because I have no idea what you're talking about. Is is that a thing? Are there plasma tubes above the Earth? Yes, oh, they are, they're definitely there. There you go, listener. Answer to solve the topics. You have been <laughs> listening, listening to. to... <laughs> no, that's <laughs> So, so um, what, what are they? We have an iron core, and that iron core is mostly molten. And so when it's sloshing around in the center of the Earth, we actually generate a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. And this magnetic field is awesome because it creates something which is called the magnetosphere and the ionosphere. And what these things do is particles come in from outer space, radiation comes in, and the magnetic field's like, nope, you know, and flicks it back out. Mm. And so it's great for not vaporizing the surface of the Earth. And <laughs> what and happens... That's, and that's great, because that's where I keep most of my stuff. <laughs> so I don't want it all vaporized. I mean, I mean, gaseous stuff is not as cool as it sounds. So, <laughs> And the thing about magnetic fields is they have magnetic field lines. And so we've studied what we think would be the shape of these magnetic field lines. And we know that when we're listening in radio, we have to be careful because there's probably faint radiation being given off by interactions that are happening here. And so it's like, okay, well, we kind of need to know what these possible plasma tubes would look like so we could understand how they might not interfere with the data, but to understand, like I was saying earlier, to separate these radio signals, to, mm-hmm. to understand, okay, well, that's coming from the plasma tubes. That's an alien. You know, it's very important <laughs> to be able to... That's right. I think so... you just let, it, you just let a, a great conspiracy slip there, Rebecca. It's just, <laughs> like, plasma tube aliens. Oh, I didn't mean aliens. I meant uh, the, other plasma tubes. That's the latest episode of In Andromeda Tonight. <laughs> Well, no, and so what's great is that what they've been able to do is use radio waves uh, and and to be able to 3D map plasma tubes. And so we can understand the shape of these things and where they are. And so it's like radio mapping the plasma tubes. She's able to come up with this way to paint a picture of what they look like. And it's pretty incredible because we always kind of thought they were there, Mm. understanding how things are reacting in the ionosphere. And, you know, we have these magnetic field lines. It's like, well, there's got to be some structure there. Mm. But what does it look like? That was the map mathematics dream until somebody came along and decided, well, let's use different kind of radio telescopes to actually 3D map it. And that's what's been done. So how would I visualize what these plasma tubes looked like? With your monkey so, cortex of with a visual Yeah, yeah. yeah I, need, I need a hose analogy, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really complicated, but essentially you would think you have the ionosphere, which is right above the sur- well, I say right above the surface of the Earth. It's not we're not like in it right now. It's a duck. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's relatively close, and so within it, you have a, when, when I say ionosphere, I mean charged things that have charge. Is mm-hmm. what ions are. So within that area is where you kind of look for the structure, and the idea is that you get tubes or you get things that are kind of funneling along these not magnetic field lines but uh because of all <laughs> and it's very difficult to explain would they, would, they, would they be like like veins under skin and sort of wiggle along the way or would they be like a really tight structure of 12 yeah hoses are, are they coiled together to or another or yeah 
Yeah, it would be more like the hoses analogy because the magnetic sphere of the earth is very strong. And so, you know, you're going to get, it's going to kind of dictate what's going on. But then, you know, you've got the ionosphere itself and you've got all these charged particles coming in. And so then they're also going to influence it. And so it's understanding those interactions too that will tell you kind of what to expect what shape to expect and it's more of a tube-like structure we have stuff getting funneled in then we can see the charged particles kind of if you will uh giving off their little radiation people hear the word plasma they think of like plasma on the sun as like billions of well millions of degrees anyway (laughs) so it's really 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 hot so we're not talking about that level of plasma we're just talking about not gas like the stripped off more of the electron stripped away is that what we're talking about, or have I missed the point yeah. here? Now, yeah, exactly. Is it super dangerous? So if we go up there, if I go in, in a ship and fly to that point and sit there, am I like dead? Or, uh, is, <laughs> or is it like, you wouldn't even know. You could sit there for days. It makes a difference. Um, I would think dead. Right. Okay. <laughs> no, um, it's just because, <laughs> because this is where the magnetic field is, is stopping all the nasty cosmic rays and things that are just high levels of radiation mm. from bombarding the earth right. and so you're kind of sitting in that you know <laughs> oh, oh, oh hang on so is, is it like when you get a piece of paper covered in iron filings and you put a magnet underneath and you've got like the thick bands of black and then there's the white bands in the middle where the iron filings don't sit is that kind of a way of thinking about these plasma tubes are the thick bands where all the filings get drawn to Yes, exactly, because these things have charge, and so they're going to interact with the magnetic field, and so they're going to get pulled, if you will, into these uh, geometries and shapes. So you should aim to fly between the plasma tubes, <laughs> not straight through the centre of them. Yeah, Could you, but you can't think, see with your eyes. I think you're fine if you're flying through. It's just, you know, if you want to sit there and have a picnic, yeah. then you might want to, rethink you know, that. Now, you said before, because Earth has a really strong magnetic field. I mean, Jupiter has a massive one, but Earth has one as well, much stronger than all the other planets. Like, no one else has a magnetic field quite like us, except Jupiter, which is much bigger. Do you think that if if aliens ever did turn up in some sort of flying saucer, they'd be like, get out of there! What are you doing? (laughs) It's really dangerous! Come, get Oh, no wonder you're so stupid! Your brains are fried! Get out! Like, it's, is it, I know it's protective and it keeps us from... How can they possibly absorb plasma and... and, that's right. and horrible space <laughs> they radiation. Must, they must be gods. They must be starving. <laughs> yes. I, I always wonder, because so many planets just seem not to have it. I, I, maybe it's a precursor for life. You have to have a magnetic field. But I just think Absolutely. sometimes, are we just getting, are we, are we just, have we somehow evolved in a really horribly nasty place? No, it's, it's the opposite. It's what you just said. Oh. Having a magnetic field basically allows us to keep our atmosphere and that combined with volcanic activity that we're pumping stuff well, besides human activity. <laughs> we're really good at, you know, doing the greenhouse gas thing too. The magnetosphere and, you know, then the ionosphere, these things are helping us keep our atmosphere. Right. And if you don't have an atmosphere, you know, look at Mars. It's got this little tiny layer. You're not able to regulate your surface temperature as well. You can't get it to a nice, balmy, well, I guess in Melbourne right now, it's centigrade so that's right <laughs> not a that's... lot's growing but um <laughs> other planets for instance venus which we think because it's so much closer to the sun that perhaps it's 
being tidally interacting and it can't really calm down and just mm-hmm. create plate tectonics like earth it's just this molten kind of you don't have solid tectonics i always so love you- the expression catastrophic resurfacing oh, yeah. that's, that's, that's two words you're like oh don't buy property don't buy property on no. venus no. <laughs> And um, so it's just the idea that you have to get like a molten core, which is rotating mm. to create a magnetic field. And but Pluto um, has an atmosphere. You said before. So, that's- well, so yes. So atmosphere versus like, again, relative. Right. <laughs> we have this very complex, thick atmosphere in combination with the magnetic field um, or magnetosphere. Mm. We've got a shield up over us and the reason we have to be careful about things re-entering the earth's atmosphere is they will burn up and all of that you know there are particles sitting in there and so Mm. it really is a shield and things interact with it before they just slam into the surface um and that's very important for keeping us alive and having an atmosphere and so it's like you look at mercury like we said and it's a small planet and it probably cooled very quickly and so wasn't really able to have the stratus of layers like we have an mm. earth and we have core and we have mantle and we have all these great layers mm. whereas yeah. other planets they they may not have these important layers the lithosphere which is mm. where the plate tectonics happen and so again it's this combination of where you form what you're made out of you know who's your neighbor do you get <laughs> <laughs> like poor mars probably was doing an okay job and then got smashed maybe by a giant comet or asteroid, which blasted off a lot of the atmosphere. And it's mm. like, well, see you later. That's bad. And, you know, if it's not able to have a molten core, to have a magnetic sphere, to hold what little atmosphere its giant volcano is making, mm. then, you know, eventually it's just going to kind of freeze up. Yeah. That's, and hopefully that won't happen. And on that positive note, <laughs> I think we should end it there. Rebecca Allen, a PhD candidate from Swinburne University, thank you very much for taking part in our interview today, putting us all correct on what's big in space right now. You're very welcome. Thank you again to Rebecca Allen. <sighs> that was so good. It was so oh. nice to feel like I wasn't asking all dumb questions. There's, there's no such thing as dumb questions, really. It's people who just don't take the answer and do yeah. something with it. No, that was really good. You had good um, questions. I, uh, uh, I just read a thing by Scott Adams the other day, and he says, well, how is it that there are no such thing as stupid questions? Do stupid people just get really smart just in time to ask the questions? That's, that's ridiculous. That's that's very petty. It's very petty. It's funny, though. It's not, it's not, like not, no, it's not even. It's, not even. Yeah, it's like just that. That a stupid question. I don't like the word stupid. You may, you may be ignorant, which people don't like. They don't see a difference. It's someone who doesn't know something. So to ask the question means, I don't know this. And they go, here's the answer. You go, now I know. Only time I think someone's stupid is when they go, oh, here's a question, here's the answer. And ask the question again. They just keep asking the same question. Like, you're not really listening to me anymore. Like, you know, I know what the real answer yeah. is. Aliens. 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 Which we kind of yelled a lot. Or magic. That's always a bad one. Gods. (laughs) Gods in chariots. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. Also, Greg at smartenough.org. We want you to travel from the other side of the planet to Brisbane, Australia. Yes. On the 1st of September. 1st of September for the 100th episode of Smart Enough to Know Better. Just to pull you up on that, it's episode 100 of Smart Enough to Know Better, the 148th episode (laughs) of Smart Enough to Know Better. The arbitrary number that we have picked, but it it is episode 100. It's a live show at the 
powerhouse theatre, which is in Brisbane. We're going to have a stage. It's going to be mic'd. It's got lights. We've got chairs. We have guest stars. We've got guest stars. We have Spencer Hausen from ABC Radio, also a guest star on the show. We have Dr. Jen Parsons, the chiropterologist, who was also a guest star on the show. We have Dr. Joel Gilmore, incredible scientist and all-around brain box, Briz science guy, and also guest star on this show. And also, if you were ever interested in The Shack, like a decade ago, oh, yeah. he was on that too. He was the sexy scientist on The Shack. Oh, so television, radio, academia, we've got it all. What's it going to be about? You'll be able to come along and tell your interesting facts to us, because that's what Smart Enough is all about. We're not the experts, We, which I'm sure you realise. We're yeah. not the experts, ladies and gentlemen. We're the stupid people asking the questions. Asking the clever questions. learning and listening. That's right. And so you, this time, you will edificate us. Edificate, edific, that's a new word. I'm going to make it up. Edificate us. That's, I'm just Someone it. asked the question <laughs> what word he's trying to say. You will be able to tell an interesting fact, a scientific fact, or any fact that is interesting that people want to know. Now, why would you do that? Why would I stand in front of a group of people, Greg and Dan, and do that? Well, because you will win fabulous prizes. Yes, there are fabulous prizes. What are they? I'm not sure yet. But they will be fabulous because I'm getting them. They're going to be science-related. It's going to be really cool. Also, don't be scared because Greg and I are, like, awesome at doing this. Yeah, We right. do this all the time. That's, we're not just a podcast. We no, mean, but yes. we make people... If you're, like, a little bit timid and going, oh, I've got a good story, but I'm a bit anxious, allow Greg and I to build the foundations yes. upon which you can build your story. It's going to be wonderful. So we'd like you to all come along. At least, if you don't want to come along and talk, that's fine. Come along and watch. Bring your friends. How much does it cost, Dan, to come along and watch us do this? Several hundred dollars. <laughs> Oh, you mean for them? Yes. It's free. <laughs> it's free for you. But if you'd like to sponsor it. Yes, please. If you've got something to promote. Yes. Then a small fee. Yes. And we can promote it at the show and on the podcast. And we'll more. And we also not just do it for one podcast. We'll spread it out. We'll talk to you about that. We'll, my people will talk to your people. My people is actually Dan. Dan will talk to you. Yeah, I'll talk to you. <laughs> so please email me at dan at smartenough.org if you'd like to support our 100th episode of Smart Enough better. You can also follow us on Twitter, SE2KB, Facebook, SE2KB, iTunes, Raiders, Stars, Reviewers, Subscribe. But uh, definitely come along to the live show. Let us know if you're coming. Email us. Let us know if you're coming. Tweet us. Just let us know if you're coming. We want to know, are you coming along? We'll know very, very soon when the it gets up on the, the Powerhouse website as well. We'll put links to that as soon as we know yep. it all goes live. But it's definitely happening. It'll be 7 p.m. on the 1st of September, which is a Tuesday at a really cool, the Turbine Studio, uh, Turbine Stage. Turbine, sorry. Turbine Platform. Turbine Platform. There we go. There's, we couldn't find a more science yes, named the theater venue. Platform. It's got windows. It's, it's great. I love that venue. So come along support us and we'll support you with us our foundations of y- yes that's yes that's co- science we're really good at comedy this. no no and, and ignorance. ignorance we're great at this <laughs> Rocking the solar system would you be able to talk about that as well um, yeah, the main thing is, though, is we don't really know what they are. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's, so I'm I, happy to talk about it. <laughs> no one knows. I just finished my master's in astronomy, so I'm oh, cool. uh, very excited. So it's all, it's all out of the way now.
Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's right. So, and I now know the difference between astrology and astronomy. That's right. So <laughs> everyone's kicking goals. Because I, I kept hitting him in the head every time. <laughs> <laughs> James Webb, is that the large-scale array telescope? Is that the Robert Webb? James Webb? No, Robert Webb's from Michelin Webb. Okay, James Webb. <laughs> it is James Webb? Yes. Well, the, the Robert Webb telescope is for just a peep show. Right. Hey. Gotcha. Thank you. Gotcha. Go Stay through something. Yeah, that's clever. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, it's very clever. Thank you. I know it is. Oh, sorry, there was a couple of layers that <laughs> yeah, had, there to, was. had to there cascade was. upon me. Yeah, that's right. No, it's fine. James Webb telescope. Sorry. Okay. Is that one of those array ones? No, it's in space, and it is just, it is essentially a similar design to Hubble. Gotcha. Were you thinking of the square kilometre array? See, I got confused because the square kilometre array is a bunch of nodes to form a mesh, and that's the one that should be called Webb. Yes. (laughs) But it's James, it's named after James Webb. It's a lost opportunity. Yes, who's not Spider-Man, so it's all very confusing. Mm. 